inspired by necessity and brought to you by technology, I welcome you into my home in Bratislava, Slovakia for the next installment of the Gospel Issue Seminar. This one dealing with whether Christians are persecuted in the United Kingdom. Now, we are pre-recording this portion of the presentation to prevent any possible streaming issues that may have come up with a live feed, but please stay tuned as immediately following the presentation, I'll go live to answer your questions and take your comments. So let's start with some basics about Christian persecution. While an argument can be made that John the Baptist was the first Christian martyr, Christian tradition names the stoning of Stephen as the first act of Christian martyrdom. Stephen was one of seven deacons appointed by the apostles to distribute food and charitable aid to the poorer members of the church community. Famously, Saul, later Paul after his conversion, watched on as those who threw the stones laid their coats at his feet. Persecution continued and grew in intensity until the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, when the Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity. Just a generation before that, Christianity saw some of its greatest persecution under Emperor Diocletian. Interestingly, Constantine served as a military tribune under Diocletian. So similar to the conversion of Paul, who had his history of being a persecutor before himself becoming persecuted, the man who would largely end persecution and legalize Christianity in the Roman Empire also actively accepted the persecution of Christianity before his miraculous conversion. The persecuted have enjoyed a high level of veneration in the Christian tradition. In Christ's Sermon on the Mount, the persecuted are mentioned in the Eighth Beatitude, saying that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecution, in fact, is a common theme in both the Old and the New Testament, and something spoken of particularly often in the Gospels. That being said, it's somehow become unpopular to speak about Christian persecution in modern times. Persecution, and the corresponding deep Christian faith associated with it, have been a constant part of human history from biblical times until now. For Jesus Christ, I am prepared to suffer still more. The words of Maximilian Kolbe, martyr of Auschwitz. In fact, there are more Christian martyrs today than at any other point in history. Jeremy Hunt, when he was Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom, commissioned a report published last year finding that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world today. Hunt himself has admitted that he believes political correctness has played a role in the issue of Christian persecution not being properly addressed. The report opines that the persecution of Christians has reached the level of genocide in several regions of the world. So that leads us to the topic at hand today. Do Christians in the United Kingdom suffer persecution? In the coming weeks, Christian Concern will be publishing a report discussing this very subject. One of the practical difficulties in undertaking a report of this nature is adequately expressing the nature of the problem at hand. There tends to be a societal litmus test used by both detractors and proponents alike that for a problem to exist, it must meet the standard of persecution. So for example, detractors believe that no problem whatsoever exists in the United Kingdom because the marginalization of Christians can hardly be compared to the mass killings, displacement of persons, and violence facing Christians in other parts of the world. On the other hand, others particularly some of those Christians facing genuine hardship in the UK because of their Christian faith, have also employed the term persecution. Now, I would suggest that they are doing so for two reasons. First, the New Testament often includes mistreatment and more severe persecution within the same verses, leading many Christians to conflate the two. Examples would be Matthews 5.11, Matthews 5.10, verses uh, 10 to 12, 2 Corinthians 12.10, 
or Hebrews 10.33. Second, popular verbiage often does not account for nuance when dealing with technical definitions. So the common vernacular, for better or worse, uses the term persecution for a large range of detriments, including those which would not rise to the technical definition of persecution. The fact is, and common sense tells us this as well, that Christians can suffer widespread mistreatment which can and should be addressed without there having to be systematic violence happening to them. In this sense, persecution can be measured in degrees rather than in absolutes. So for the purposes of this seminar and the report Christian Concern will be publishing hopefully later this month, we've adopted and adapted the metrics used by the Pew Research Institute to focus on how to measure Christian persecution in the UK. Now first, it is important to define what we mean by Christian. For the sake of this exercise, we define Christian inclusively as anyone who identifies as a Christian and has serious and cogent beliefs supporting their faith. As the purposes of this report are not theological but are meant to inform and drive policy, we have accepted a wide spectrum of belief under this umbrella. In doing so, we align our definition of Christian with a legal understanding of what constitutes a believer or belief under both the Human Rights Act and the Equality Act. This is important because one of the common objections to the notion that Christians face mistreatment in the United Kingdom is that not all Christians believe, for example, that abortion is wrong and that some denominations are supportive or indifferent towards LGBT issues, gender ideology, or other morally sensitive matters. The argument is that if some Christians don't take issue with these things, then there is no need to protect Christians who do take them as matters of faith. Now, first of all, this lowest common denominator way of thinking is theologically flawed. It ignores serious biblical belief as well as the dogma and doctrine of the vast majority of Christian denominations. Second, this way of thinking is not supported by the law and should never be supported by policy or practice. Using the metrics that I mentioned a few minutes ago, we can examine Christian persecution in the UK within two spheres. First, what level of government restrictions face Christians in Britain as compared to other countries? This requires analyzing laws, policy, and practice. So on the extreme side of the scale, government persecution of Christianity is active and may include imprisonment of believers, criminal punishment for gatherings or for evangelism, and a lack of government response to persecution by third parties, as we have sadly seen in Syria and Iraq, and increasingly in Sub-Saharan Africa. On the lower end of the scale are governments who actively promote laws and policies which support freedom of religion, and where practice is in line with robust laws protecting religious exercise. At this lowest level, societal intolerance or bias against Christianity is actively challenged, and steps are taken to raise the national level of religious literacy. Now, according to our research and analysis, the United Kingdom is at a mid to high level of government restrictions using this scale. While the UK has good laws protecting religious freedom, policy and practice often undermine these laws to the detriment of Christians. Among other things, the data shows that intolerance to certain Christian beliefs have led more and more universities to create a moral litmus test, thereby creating a bar to profession for some Christians. Similarly, universities are increasingly implementing policies specifically aimed at no platforming or limiting freedom of association of students and groups which espouse traditional Christian values. Incidences of street preachers being arrested and Christians being reported to prevent for anti-extremism has also seen a sharp increase. 
Judges and officers of the court have also shown an increasing religious illiteracy or hostility towards traditional Christian beliefs. Now, the second matrix deals with the level of societal persecution Christians face in the UK. A country which is at the severe end of the spectrum has severe or gross human rights abuses against Christians. This would include killings, rapes, displacement, and social targeting. The other end of the spectrum, a country measuring a low level of societal persecution, would be one where tolerance, respect, and freedom for Christians is promoted, and where discriminatory treatment or bias is the exception and not the norm. As with governmental restrictions, the United Kingdom finds itself in the middle of this scale. Mainstream media and social media outlets often show vitriol towards traditional Christianity. Cultural forces led by campaigning organizations and mainstream media have fed into the straw man image of conservative Christians as being backward, hateful, close-minded, or homophobic. Christian beliefs, once seen to be the norm only 10 to 15 years ago, are now labeled as fanatical, extreme, far-right, alt-right, or fundamentalist. These perceptions are increasingly enjoying a wide level of acceptance within culture. Education has also become increasingly hostile for many Christian parents who, because of their faith, object to sensitive moral matters being taught to their children. Their concerns have often been, uh, been belittled by MPs, policymakers, and media as being religious and therefore of little consequence or even backwards, small-minded or hateful. Parents who have aired concerns have largely been ignored, marginalized or belittled by head teachers and governors who have conflated Christian parenting with bigotry. Furthermore, the instances of Christians facing discipline from their employers, including losing their jobs for reasons connected to religious expression, has grown exponentially in the last five years. This punishment extends to the expression of Christian opinions on social media platforms. Rather than viewing incidences where Christian beliefs clash with LGBT interests as a conflict of competing rights or worldviews, Christian exercise has more often than not been dealt with as homophobia or transphobia. The overreaction and overpunishment of such incidences is also noteworthy. That being said, I personally do not find the persecution moniker particularly helpful for the reasons I mentioned earlier regarding its lack of precision and how the term is misunderstood by those with lower opinions of freedom of religion. Similarly, I find the term Christianophobia counterproductive for several reasons. First, by calling it Christianophobia, we place the phenomenon facing many Christians in the UK in the basket of all the other phobias, like homophobia, Islamophobia, or transphobia. It then becomes just another marginalized minority group within the world of identity politics. The term that I would use for what is happening in the United Kingdom is one that was first used at the intergovernmental level uh, by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and later given further credence by the European Parliament. That term is intolerance and discrimination against Christians. The term includes the twin concepts of anti-Christian bias and anti-Christian discrimination. Anti-Christian bias is a predisposition against an individual or a group wholly or partly due to their Christian beliefs or practices. This would include stereotyping Christians in a negative fashion or representing Christian beliefs as oppressive or backwards or irrational. It would also include organizations going out of their way to respect the demands of other faiths, but not of Christians. 
Anti-Christian discrimination, on the other hand, is discrimination against a group of people or persons, wholly or partly, due to their Christian beliefs or practices. This would include discrimination against someone because of his or her beliefs about marriage or sexual ethics. It would also include discrimination against someone because they have a conscientious objection to participating in abortion or being required to use transgender pronouns. Before getting into some concrete examples of intolerance and discrimination against Christians, it's worth noting some of the root causes of animus against Christians. Looking back, only a generation or two, being a Christian was viewed with respect and honor. Today, it is largely looked on with suspicion and ridicule. So the question is, how did such a dramatic turn happen so quickly? The answer is that the floorboards have been rotten for a long time and things have only now come crashing through. One of the primary root causes of what we are now seeing in the UK is a strain of cultural Marxism. Perhaps cultural Marxism's most famous proponent was Antonio Gramsci. Gramsci sought to break from Marx's economic determinism and base his theory on the wielding and maintaining of power by the ruling class, which has commonly become known as the theory of cultural hegemony. Gramsci believed that the ruling class, which he called the bourgeoisie, used cultural institutions to maintain power. They would use ideology rather than violence or economic force to propagate their own values in creating the capitalist zeitgeist. Cultural hegemony is maintained by the ruling capitalist class through the institutions that make up the superstructure. Gramsci's counter-hegemony is deeply rooted in today's theory of intersectionality. It seeks to dismantle the existing cultural hegemony by cultural subversion and opposition, challenging the legitimacy of existing superstructural institutions like family, religion, and political power. In Gramsci's own words, he viewed the task thus, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. In the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. These ideas were popularized a generation later by the so-called Frankfurt School. Philosophers like Jürgen Herbermas, Herbert Marcuse, and Eric Fromm. Now you may not know their names, but you certainly know the fruits of their work. They believed in dismantling the Judeo-Christian norms which anchor society. The sexual revolution and all of its poisonous fruits can be traced directly to them. The goal was to make Christianity, heteronormativity, monogamy, and traditional marriage a thing of the past. If we go back even further, Enlightenment thought and rationalism, the engines behind the French Revolution which made humanism the new state religion, and sought to make Christianity irrelevant, if not an enemy of the state, mutated into a philosophy of radical autonomy. The belief that I have absolute freedom over my actions and autonomy over my moral choices. That toxic combination of rationalism, bentium utilitarianism, and cultural Marxism cloaked itself into human rights language. I have an absolute right to moral freedom, and the state has an obligation to enforce that right against Judeo-Christian norms or the common good. The emergence of human rights dialogue signaled the death knell of the natural law as a popular force in modern jurisprudence. Modern-day Gramskyism can be found in the thought of Saul Alinsky, who mentored future leaders like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. 
He believed that the true cultural Marxist revolutionary wasn't a soldier in the opposition, but that he was the one driving the government and the media. A new meta-narrative was slowly being created where, the, where entire groups of people would be portrayed as victims because of their race, sexual orientation, gender, or gender identity. The goal was to seize power back from what was viewed as the ruling power, also known as the bourgeoisie class and what I earlier referred to as the cultural hegemony. Within the power structure, traditional Christianity became a primary enemy. LGBT campaigning was also birthed by this school of thought. One of the more outspoken goals of LGBT activism has been to deconstruct heteronormativity. Heteronormativity is defined as a belief that heterosexuality is the normal or default sexual orientation and the basis of family. At its heart, detractors suggest that such beliefs breed homophobia and the disenfranchisement of those who identify as LGBT. In fact, some of the key figures in the No Outsiders Primary School program, which is now used in more and more UK schools, have suggested that we must queer up the primary school classroom in order to redefine these norms, including the belief in the traditional family by creating new norms early in our children's education. In 1970, Carl Whitman published the Gay Manifesto. Whitman's activism grew out of a group called Students for a Democratic Society, a group that Alinsky was also famously close to. The Gay Manifesto was a declaration of war against heteronormativity. In 1989, Kirk and Madsen published After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. The book has been credited as being a Magna Carta of LGBT activism. Its strategy included demonizing Christians as being hateful, gaining mainstream attention in film and television, getting corporate sponsorship, and changing cultural, sexual, and religious norms. Kirk and Madsen's strategy was so successful that these days it's a rare thing indeed not to hear traditional Christian beliefs about sexuality challenged as being homophobic or backwards. A second root cause has been the popular rise of secular humanism. There is more to secularism than merely church-state ordering. Indeed, the true heart of secularism is not a belief in the separation of church and state, but the belief that questions can only be answered and considerations can only be made by reference to the present life. As George Jacob Holyoke, the man who first used the phrase secularism, explained in the 19th century, secular knowledge is manifestly that kind of knowledge which is found in this life which relates to the conduct of this life, conduces the welfare of this life, and is capable of being tested by the experience of this life. This belief, therefore, has significant implications for how religion is viewed in the public square under the secular humanist philosophy. Firstly, because it is claimed that religion deals only with spiritual matters, and because secularism specifically overlooks such considerations, a society premised on secularism will not provide any public space for spiritual matters and will confine religion to the private realm. The result is the active and sometimes aggressive removal of religion from public life. For example, in the secular humanist mindset, chaplains and hospitals have no clinical benefit and are therefore a waste of money. Local counselors or politicians voluntarily beginning the day in corporate prayer is wholly inappropriate and collective worship in school is a clear breach of young people's human rights. People may believe whatever they want, the secularist will state, but those beliefs must be private. 
and certainly the state should not actively support them through funding and tax exemptions. Thus, rather than public expressions of religion being seen as beneficial for society, it is seen as a privilege which needs to be removed. Secondly, secularism has no basis for comprehending an individual's appeal to higher authority. Thus, from the secular perspective, freedom of conscience must be very limited indeed. It is only permitted providing that it has no impact on others. Such a concession is in fact meaningless. A person's freedom of conscience only needs to be exercised when it collides with the status quo. Given that secularism cannot provide a framework for appeals to higher authority, it is unsurprising that in increasingly secular countries like the United Kingdom, conscientious objections are constantly being challenged with regard to profound moral issues such as abortion or materially participating in supporting same-sex marriage. These anti-Christian philosophers have forged deeper and deeper roots as the marriage culture has fallen apart, as pornography has become mainstreamed into culture, and as education has increasingly focused on winning the hearts and minds of our children in spite of how our parents may wish to raise them. As one head teacher told me recently in justifying not consulting parents about becoming a Stonewall partner, he believed that parents were part of the problem and not the solution. Nigel and Sally Rowe are Christian parents who hold and wish to instill in their children a biblically-centered belief in gender, beliefs that would include Genesis 1.27, where scripture says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Or Matthew 19.4, where Christ says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? In seeking to raise their children according to their Christian beliefs, they sent their two sons to a Church of England school on the Isle of Wight. Within two school years, both of their children, ages six and eight, found themselves in classes with boys who, under their parents and the school's direction, were now to be identified as girls. Because of the confusion and discomfort suffered by their older son, he was removed from the school and home educated. Nigel and Sally attempted to work the matter out with the school in relation to their youngest son. In response to a letter they sent to the school asking about anti-bullying measures and their own parental rights, the school responded by suggesting that anyone, including the Rose, who could not believe that these children were girls or refused to use female pronouns would be viewed by the school as being transphobic. The school also announced their intention to educate parents and students alike in accordance with this gender ideology. The result has been that Nigel and Sally have also removed their youngest son and litigation over the matter will commence imminently. The celebration of sexual freedom and the meta-narrative that because the LGBT community has been historically marginalized, that correction should be made as part of education has led to a level of proselytism in some schools regarding sexual orientation and gender identity which comes into direct moral conflict with how many Christian parents wish to raise their children. The end result has been school environments as egregious towards Christian beliefs as that found at Hevers Farm School in Croydon. Izzy Montague is one of at least 14 parents who complained to the head teacher of Hevers Farm when pupils as young as five were forced without any parental right of opt-out to participate in a gay pride parade organized by the school. The Christian Legal Center, who has been supporting Izzy and appeared with her before the school governors, have also been made aware that at least three parents who complained were also barred from the school premises after making their complaints and that their children faced numerous and lengthy detentions. The school also had posters supporting Stonewall around the school, read LGBT-themed books 
to the children like Entangle Makes Three. And if since Izzy's story broke and the national media adopted a rainbow flag symbol as its PTA logo. The school also displays a photo of a year one pupil holding a placard stating, I have a dream if boys could go to the same toilet as girls. As part of the complaints procedure, Izzy met with the head teacher to discuss her concerns as a Christian mother about the level of proselytism within the school regarding sexual orientation. The head's daughter, also a member of school staff, attended the meeting wearing a t-shirt with a slogan, why be racist, sexist, homophobic, or transphobic when you could just be quiet. The school rejected any contention that the t-shirt breached school dress code policy for staff, implying that it was perfectly normal for pupils as young as four to be exposed to this messaging. They also denied that it was warned to cause any offense to Izzy or to caricature her as being homophobic. The message coming from our pastors and preachers has also fallen under increased scrutiny. Barry Drehorn is an ordained Pentecostal minister who was forced to resign from his post as a gardener at Her Majesty's Prison Little Hay after a complaint was made by an anonymous prisoner about Bible verses he quoted at a prison chapel service where he volunteered. And Barry quoted from 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 11. The two verses, also as quoted in the Employment Tribunal, read this way. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with, man with mankind, nor thieves, nor coveters, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He finished his message by letting the prisoners know God's love for them, saying, and I quote, You may want to complain about this, but this is the word of God. God loves you and wants to forgive you. The Honorable Mrs. Justice Slade, presiding over Barry's case, mused during the proceedings that it may be all right for this verse to be read in St. Paul's Cathedral, but not in Little Hay Prison, where there are vulnerable prisoners. The case raises significant issues of freedom of worship and freedom of expression, particularly the right to share scripture during a voluntary church service. Fundamentally, it asks whether our courts now deem scripture they disagree with as being hate speech. Where a biblical message of repentance from sexual vice during a prison ministry service to sexual offenders is just cause for losing one's job, we must really rethink whether religious liberty and our God-ordained duty to preach the gospel message have become dead letter in British law. Has a right to not be offended been adopted into our law even where offense is in the best interest of the hearer? Barry's case exemplifies a potential watershed moment in the history of our courts where even our pastors and ministers can lose their jobs for disagreeing with the cultural orthodoxy of the day. Mike Overd, together with another street preacher, Michael Stockwell, had been convicted of religiously aggravated public order defense following their arrest in July 2016. He and his friends had been preaching in a Bristol shopping area and responded to questions, objections, and abuse. Despite being the victim of verbal abuse and assault himself, only the street preachers were arrested and charged. The ruling was eventually overturned on appeal. Prosecutor Ian Jackson told the court that although the words preached are included in the version of the Bible in 1611, this does not mean that they are incapable of amounting to a public order offense in 2016. The conviction was reminiscent of a modern day hearsay trial 
Freedom of religion and the right to express one's faith are fundamental to the law and to a vibrant democratic society. In fact, religious tolerance is the very barometer by which the health of a, of a democracy can be judged. The views of Mr. Jackson, as well as the magistrate's court which convicted Mr. Obert and Mr. Sockwell, evidence a deep and very dangerous cultural shift fed by intolerance and ignorance of both the Christian message and the prevailing legal protections for Christian speech. Freedom of religious expression has also been under attack on university campuses. Felix Nagoli is a Christian student who has been removed from his master's degree in social work at the University of Sheffield after he made comments on his personal Facebook page in support of biblical teaching on marriage and sexual ethics. Felix was told that by posting his comments on Facebook, he may have caused offense to some individuals and had transgressed boundaries which are not deemed appropriate for someone entering the social work profession. Now, I would suggest that the case represents an egregious incidence of viewpoint discrimination, whereby Felix has been disciplined not for the subject matter he addressed, but for the side he took in the debate. The case highlights the reality that some universities are seeking to create a bar to certain professions which would make it impossible for authentic Christians to practice those vocations. Counsel for the University of Sheffield, Sarah Hannett of Matrix Chambers, told the court that the university's policy is not just that the services must be provided without discrimination, but that they must be provided without perception of discrimination, and that required the removal of Mr. Nigoli from the course. She denied that there was a nexus between the sharing of his opinion on biblical marriage and his Christian faith, yet nonetheless argued that Felix was removed not for what he said, but for the manner he said it. The reality is that this is a distinction without difference. The genuineness of this argument also smacks of dubiousness, as no students in the University of Sheffield who have used their Facebook pages to promote social views which the, which the university agrees with, including on issues involving sexual orientation, have ever been punished. The matter was granted judicial review by the High Court. Before the Court of Appeal, counsel for the University of Sheffield went so far as to say Mother Teresa could be barred from social work if she'd expressed her Christian beliefs about homosexuality. She argued that even speaking against same-sex marriage in a Bible study should be enough to exclude you from the social work profession. Thankfully, right reason won the day, and the Court of Appeals overturned the lower court's earlier ruling, making it clear that expressing a Christian opinion is wholly different from engaging in an act of discrimination. The court said Felix had never discriminated against a service user, nor was there any indication that he ever would. The case stands for the fundamental principle that Christians enjoy the same freedoms to express their opinion as everyone else in the public square, without fear of being expelled from their profession of choice or otherwise punished. Sarah Kute is a Christian nurse with 15 years experience. She had been working at Durant Valley Hospital since 2007, where she had been awarded promotions in the past for a competent service. Sarah, who at the time of her termination worked in pre-op assessment, was terminated for gross misconduct following a single written complaint and several purported verbal complaints to other nurses for sharing her faith. Sarah typically saw 30 to 40 patients a week and has served several hundred patients during her tenure with the hospital. Sarah's dismissal, in light of her outstanding experience and the fact that in her 15 years of work there had only been one formal complaint made against her for speaking about her faith, makes it quite clear that her punishment was grossly disproportionate. 
Judge Martin Curran, hearing Sarah's case before the Employment Tribunal, said that people should not express anything about their own beliefs without it first being raised as a question by someone else. The judge also apologized for his lack of religious literacy and any offense he may have caused as a result. A general manager for adult medicine and cancer service at Dartford and Gravesham NHS Trust testified that there should be no tolerance for sharing one's faith at work and that religious freedom must be left at the door when in the workplace because sharing one's Christian faith may bring discomfort to the public or to co-workers. Sarah's case is important for many reasons, including defending the right to share the gospel in the public square. Undergoing a medical procedure can be an emotional and terrifying experience. Sarah's loving attitude is the very definition of good bedside manner. As a further result of sharing her faith with a patient, Sarah also faced disqualification before the Nursing and Midwifery Council and was only recently reinstated following a period of suspension. Incidences of anti-Christian bias leading to anti-Christian discrimination have become the new normal. Christy Higgs, a pastoral assistant at a school, was fired from her job simply for reposting messages on her Facebook, where her posts were shown only to her friends and not to the public, sharing concerns about the sexualization of children through RSE. Svetlana Powell was fired from her job as a teacher and even reported to prevent after she answered questions from her 17 and 18 year old students about her Christian views on homosexuality. Richard Page was dismissed as a magistrate in the family division for saying that as a matter of his faith and in his experience as a magistrate and a foster carer, he believed that children do best with the mother and father. Dr. David Macareth was fired from his job as a disability assessor for not wanting to be compelled to use gender pronouns in a manner that offended his Christian faith. We would need another 10 seminars just going through all of the examples we have personally dealt with a Christian concern. The truth is that things are so bad in the United Kingdom that our domestic courts have even been unable to recognize the cross as a Christian symbol. Shirley Chaplin and Nadia Ouida both were told by their respective employers that they would no longer be able to wear a cross as part of their uniform policies. The issue was finally redressed by the European Court of Human Rights, which stated that a cross worn for reasons motivated by faith must be distinguished from ordinary decorative jewelry. And noted that in a healthy democracy, tolerance and diversity demands that individuals be able to communicate their beliefs to others in ways such as visibly wearing a cross. The court rejected the United Kingdom's position that religious freedom meant only the right to leave one's job and find another job if an element of their employment conflicted with their faith. The fact is, whether polite society wishes to admit it or not, there is a very real problem facing Christians who hold sincere biblical beliefs. Last year alone, the Christian Legal Center gave advice to nearly 900 Christians who faced some kind of detriment directly related to their Christian faith. That 900 is representative of many, many more Christians who either faced the detriment without a challenge or sought advice elsewhere. Even in the three short years that I have worked with Christian Concern, there has been a remarkable uptick in people seeking assistance in cases which the Christian Legal Center has supported. Intolerance and discrimination of Christians who are serious about their faith has gone from being an occasional occurrence to being the norm. Employers, law enforcement, schools, universities, local authorities, and even our courts have evidenced a remarkable lack of religious literacy fed by societal prejudices against Christians which have gone unchallenged for far too long. Our goal in creating a report evidencing the level of intolerance and discrimination against Christians in the United Kingdom 
is to identify the problem with an aim to correcting it. We can't do this without your support. Churches and individual Christians need to take a stand when they are being marginalized or when their freedoms are being taken away. Our churches need to equip each of you to play your part. You need to challenge cultural stereotypes which show animus towards Christian beliefs. When one of you is mocked or marginalized, all of us are mocked and marginalized. We are in this together. Thank you and God bless you.